Welcome to It's a Good Life podcast, where it's all about helping entrepreneurs think, feel, and do better. Here's your host, Brian Buffini. Well, it's top of the morning to you, and welcome to It's a Good Life. Today, we have a very special guest for you, Mr. Jordan Harbinger. Uh, Jordan is a Wall Street lawyer turned interview talk show host. That doesn't happen every day. As one does. Yeah. <laughs> As one does. He's got a particular expertise in communications and social dynamics. On the Jordan Harbinger Show, he deconstructs the playbooks of the most successful people on earth and shares their strategies and perspectives with the rest of us. But there's also quite a bit more to Jordan. He's a very interesting character who's lived a very interesting life. A few wild adventures from being kidnapped not once but twice and escaping. I want to hear that story. And hacking the phone systems as a kid, ordering pizza for his entire school on a credit card. I guess he was brilliant at a young age and just needed to find the outlet. And thank God he did. It's called the Jordan Harbinger Show. Jordan, thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me, man. It's funny you mentioned the pizza thing. It, you know, you say I ordered it with a credit card. I was 13, so it wasn't my credit card. That was the problem with that. Most people can order pizza with a credit card. The problem is when it's not yours. Yeah. Yeah. Well, pretty talented. Uh, we're going to get into all of that. Uh, again, just uh, need to find a good outlet for all those superpowers. And it looks like you have. You've landed in your sweet spot. Yeah. You know, it's it's funny because uh, people now go, oh, I guess you were just bored as a kid. And I think, yeah, I was. But how did... <laughs> How was how were other people not bored as kids and how how come I didn't get into more trouble? And frankly, the 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 things I talk about now on the Jordan Harbinger show and the interviews I do, this really is me still in kid mode and being like, oh, let's talk to this mobster, but not actually murder 19 people. That part, you know, we'll leave that part out. Right. And and all the cyber criminals and things like that. It's all, it's all so interesting. And I think the more I can access like my curious kid mode, the better my show is for sure on that day. For sure. And you know what? We're all lacking some of that. And I think especially post pandemic era where creativity and curiosity seem to have gotten thrown to the back burner. Yeah. And I also think in the in the era of nose in the phone, curiosity disappears. So yes, I think that's why people are living vicariously through shows like this and shows like yours, where we're able to have interesting conversations with interesting people who think differently and do things differently. It's it's true. The nose in the phone thing, it had me thinking lately because I, I can't remember where I read this, but essentially, since we don't give our minds time to wander, we don't our brains don't do the things they used to do when they were in maintenance mode. And uh, for computer nerds, we might call this like defragmenting the hard drive where eh, your computer's not doing much. All right, I'm going to start moving files to easier locations to access things. And I'm going to start connecting, th you know, cleaning up a little bit. Our brains do things when we are not actively shoveling information into them. That makes memories easier to access that makes connections between things. That's why when you come, you come up with great ideas when you're in the shower, because yeah. you can do that without much thought. But if you're constantly scrolling Instagram or reading an email that's about, you know, your dry cleaning is ready, your brain just doesn't have that time where it goes, all right, I'm going to take everything I've learned in the past couple of days and sort of like cram it together into a snowball yeah. and see if anything packs together and sticks. And, and we just don't do that that much anymore. And I'm guilty of that too. I'm not like, I'm not sitting there meditating after work. Right. You know, I'm, I'm farting around on Instagram like everybody else. It's just not good for you. You know, they used to talk about in the personal growth industry, the ricochet effect that when good information went in and then you had time to process it, it would ricochet inside your head and stuff you were already thinking about. I, I used to get this all the time at our live events. Oh, when you said this, it changed my life. And I never said it. Right. No, all the time. 
Your show about this was amazing. I definitely had nothing to do with that, but okay, I'll take the credit. Thanks for the email. But it was the creativity. So before we kind of dive in all the way here, tell us a little bit about yourself as far as where you came from. Your very interesting childhood, and it paints the picture for the backdrop here. Yeah, you know, people think like, oh, you must have grown up all around the world and did it. No, I grew up in the most, one of the most boring suburban sort of situations you could imagine. You know, my parents worked really hard. They were great people, so they did the right thing, and they moved us from... Detroit area to slightly further away from the Detroit area, right? And (laughs) my dad was an auto worker. My mom was a public school teacher and they worked long hours. And then I got the internet and proceed to destroy my life. I mean, it was like (laughs) skip school every day, go online, download pirated games. And eventually I was like, there's got to be more to the internet. And I had a neighbor buddy who was also like a big computer nerd and his family had other geeky computer people in it and they would come over and be like here's the internet guys you you think the internet uh, is is something you guys access at a library okay the internet and this is early 90s so there wasn't like click here download this you could navigate these text menus and there'd be chat rooms full of israeli hackers or or international (laughs) groups of hackers i should say because they were speaking english it wasn't just israeli but you know i remember meeting people from other parts of the world and and we have to put this in the time context right when it's 1994, 1995, and you're talking with somebody who's on the other side of the world in real time in a chat room on the internet that nobody knows exists, that is unprecedented, it's unheard of, kids are definitely not doing it. AOL was America Online, which was like a thing a lot of Americans used to get their email. You would DM your <laughs> right. uncle on there for two minutes and nobody would reply half the time. You know, this internet relay chat is what it was called, these sort of like dark, now we would have more dark web stuff. This was like the dark web back then. and. You could just, you'd be in a chat room and someone would be like, hey, does anybody have a credit card burn number that I can use? And someone would be like, yeah, I just bought a bunch of stuff with this. It's probably not going to be good anymore. Maybe a couple hundred bucks left. And they'd throw it in the chat. And I'm like, people are sharing stolen information here. You know, so my mind was just blown. And I started to take some of the plans that these guys had put into the chat rooms on how to break open these uh, green boxes on the side of the road. And you can open them up. Well, you're you're not supposed to open them up. The linemen who run the phone company can (laughs) open them up with a hex wrench that you can make online, given the right plans. And inside, there's all these... (laughs) From the Israeli. Right, yeah, from the Israeli. There's all these screw pairs in there. And each pair is a landline that belongs to somebody in your neighborhood. And these are not digitally encrypted. Maybe they are now, I doubt it. But back then, they certainly weren't. And you could get pretty much any phone... Uh, or ideally a lineman's handset, one of those orange things, and you could clip alligator clips to that line pair, and you're just, you're an extension of that phone line, and you can listen, and you can call out, and everything. So I was doing that a lot, because I found a green box with a bush <laughs> next to it, and I'd throw my bike in the bush, and I'd sit behind the bush, and nobody would come and stop me, and I was I was easy. So how old were you at this like state? 13. When you were a wiretapper, how old a 13-year-old wiretapper? Yeah, tapper. and I'm 42 now, so hopefully the statute of limitations has run on this. <laughs> <laughs> but but like, I, I'm just listening to phone call. And I remember once a, a cop came by and was like, what are you doing? And I was like, oh, the lineman guy, he said he'd be right back. And, and I, he said I could just like listen to this as long as I didn't touch anything. And he's like, oh, OK, are you OK? I'm like, yeah, I'm fine. He's like, OK. No problem. And I'm just thinking. But Mrs. Mrs. Maselli's really struggling with her ex-husband you know, down the road. It's funny you should mention that because one of the main sort of turns for me 
into getting interested in people instead of just breaking into systems and things like that was I did hear one of my neighbors, it wasn't a woman, it was a man, getting getting a divorce, you know, and he would talk to his mom and he'd be kind of this blubbering mess. And then he talked to his sister and he'd be kind of this like little boy. And his, I guess, older sister would be trying to comfort him and give him advice that he wouldn't listen to. And then he'd talk to his buddies and he'd be like, yeah, you know, I don't even care, uh, like a Mr. Tough Guy. And then he'd be talking to his ex and he'd be this mean, kind of jerky, standoffish guy. And I, this was the turning point for me as a kid where adults became three-dimensional. Because when you're young, adults are people who like take you to eat food or give you homework or yell at you or tell you what to do or tell you what not to do. They are not living, breathing people with problems. Because my parents were pretty normal. Like, they weren't fighting. They weren't dysfunctional, uh, at least not openly, right? So when I heard an adult say things like, I just don't know what to do. Is she going to leave me? I was like, wow, this is an adult that actually has a real problem. And I've got a front row seat. No one, no one who has a healthy family is showing that side to their kids because it's bad for the kids to see their parents like that. But for me, it was more it was fascinating because I really did have a front row seat to someone's almost someone's inner thoughts. You know, I wasn't reading his mind, but I was hearing things he thought were definitely private that he was telling people very close to him. And that was like, I thought the phone system was complicated. Now I was like, I want to hack humans because they are far more interesting and complicated than, than this phone system. How did you end up working with the FBI? How did that whole thing come about? So the phone thing didn't go away when I got interested in people. <laughs> I, I, I started. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. Right. Um, so I started to. The, the phone system was great, but I realized I, I couldn't really make that many calls. I mean, what am I going to do? Go open up a box, bring this orange phone, plug it in, dial out on one of my neighbor's phone lines to that just it was stealing. It was wrong. People would be trying to use the phone. I was going to get caught. So I started getting interested in cellular phones. Those were brand new. And that to me was also just mind blowing. I remember reading an article that my mom had cut out of the newspaper and it said something like again, 1993, 1994. Soon people will have phones that can dial anywhere in the world with no wires and it will be small enough to fit in your pocket. And I was like, how can that be possible? How is that possible? Because I'm thinking something strong enough to beam a signal all the way across the world can't fit in your pocket. But I didn't know how cellular phone networks worked, obviously. But I saw a guy at a restaurant and he had he would just his, he said, I got to go. I'm going to eat. And he closed his little plastic gray phone and he set it down. It didn't quite fit in his pocket because, again, 1994 it would have been a big pocket. And I went, wow. And I walked up to him. and My mom's like, what are you doing? And I, could, I said, is that a cell phone? And he said, yeah cool, huh? And I was like, can I see it? And he showed it to me, he didn't hand it to me, he showed it to me, and I was like, there's a digital screen on there, and I knew I had to have one, but I couldn't afford one. So what I did was I found the guys online that probably 2020 hindsight stole them, repaired them, or or, or took them out of a dumpster, you know, broken, yeah. and then opened yeah. them up and soldered whatever back together that somebody had dropped, put a new screen in, whatever it is. And I, I bought one, I saved my money, I bought one from these guys. And they were like, what is, what is this for? You, you're not a drug dealer, because I just didn't have that look, and that's who was buying these phones from these guys. And I said, no, I'm just really interested in how it works. And they're like, well, you're in the right place, because that's, that's all we do, is we, we're obsessed with these phones, we fix them, we sell them, but we fix them and we sell them because this is the coolest thing that any of us have ever seen. So these like 23-year-old dudes from Detroit are picking up this 14-year-old kid who rides his bike down. I'm like, Mom, go to 7-Eleven, Ma, you know? And she's like, okay. And I'm going down and hanging out and they're soldering cables together and we're plugging them into the computer and we're programming 
new phone numbers into them? Because back then, cell phones, these were not secure digital devices like you're looking at with your iPhone. These are radios with a couple channels on them that are they're analog and and you can program them by plugging them into your PC and with a cable you make with plans you find online and you can go to a cell phone store back then they had these cell phone stores you could go into the dumpster and there'd be those printouts with you know remember the printers that had the dots oh, yeah. on the side oh, and you'd yeah. have to pull the the, the dot the, matrix the, 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 uh, the little thing off the side the the circles um there'd be reams of that and what those were were receipts and it would say oh uh Mr. Brian Buffini he bought a cell phone. His phone number is this. His electronic serial number is this. His plan starts on the 2nd of June and bills every month. And it's an unlimited corporate plan. He works for uh, Ameritech, you know, phone company, whatever. So I get that. And I all I needed was the phone number and the serial number. And you just tell the phone, hey, my phone number is this. And my electronic serial number, the hidden part, is this. But it's on a printout in a dumpster. They didn't think that was private or necessary to hide. I mean, who's diving in a dumpster at a cell phone store to reprogram a phone? Only us, probably. <laughs> a, a few people Harbinger like us. Was. Jordan Harbinger and a handful of people across the United States and not many more. And, and so we would just program these phones. And we had hundreds of these things. Hundreds and hundreds of, of, of numbers and serial numbers dozens of broken phones some were barely broken like the battery terminal was bent and then instead of repairing it it because it was an older model they just chucked it out you know it, they didn't have recycling so we would go so you mean to tell me i can just take a piece of metal and bend it and put it in there and i got a brand new nec p300 cellular phone so we had all these and, and we would run them in test modes because the guys would get the manuals from the manufacturer even i would do that i would call a manufacturer and say yeah I've got this NEC P300 and uh, I want to write a report on it for school. And could you send me the manual? And I sounded like a young lady, I'm sure at the time. <laughs> and they would mail me the manual like, oh, OK, no problem. Enjoy your phone uh, that you borrowed from your uncle. And they'd send me the manual and I, it would say, like, here's how you get it into the test mode. Here's how you get it into the number uh, scanning mode. And it's for maintenance guys who work at NEC, the, the I think, Japanese electronics company. So we would take these phones and we'd put them in the scan mode. And I'm this is mine still to this day. I'm like, how did they not fix this right away? You could take a cell phone, a certain model, NEC P301, if memory serves, and you could turn it into the scanner mode by plugging it into the computer. And it would scan every channel in your area that had a cell phone conversation on it. So you could listen to anybody's phone calls in your area as long as the phone was in range of that conversation. So it, it didn't work for a lot of conversations because people were driving away from you. And so you'd catch a minute of it and then no more. But if somebody was, let's say, using the cell phone in their house, which I don't know why you would do that, but if they were using it near you or they had, you know, were driving slowly or stuck in traffic, you could listen to the whole conversation. And so I just took the wiretapping thing to a whole kind of new level with that phone. And I carry that phone with me everywhere. And so that leads to the uh, the issues with the FBI. So <laughs> the FBI, you'd think I got in trouble for that. I did not. What I got in trouble for was the pizza incident that you had referenced. And so I was taking the burner cards from the Internet chat and I wasn't doing anything with them because I wasn't a thief. But I, I decided to have a prank because I, I don't know where I got the idea it was just like, if I do a prank, maybe I'll be really popular instead of a geek, which, you know, mm, your mileage may vary. So I decided to order pizza for the whole school and I had planned it all out and I called from the school payphone. So it was like, we're going to find this kid. Oh, it's the school payphone. Could be anybody. There's no cameras. It's the 90s. And I ordered the pizza 
And the pizza guy comes uh, the next day or whatever it was, drops the pizzas off on the tables as instructed. I knew the assistant principal was going to be there monitoring and asking what was going on. And I told him when she comes up, you're supposed to say, happy birthday, Mrs. Jacobson. So he did that, which was hilarious for everybody but Mrs. Jacobson. And then she talked to him in the office. Uh, The kids ran up and grabbed all the pizza and ate it. And it was just this big chaotic mess. And then they started interviewing all the bad kids at school and they blamed all the bad kids and they didn't have any evidence. They had no proof, nothing. But they they eventually they picked a friend of mine named Mike, who was kind of a bad kid. And he was like, I can't believe I'm going to get in trouble for this. I'm going to get expelled. His dad came. His dad was super pissed. His mom was super pissed. They didn't believe him. So I actually came clean which really sucked because I was going to get away with it, but they were going to expel my friend who didn't do anything. How many pizzas were there? There were like probably 20. Oh, nice. Yeah. I mean, it was the whole middle school cafeteria. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Ten, let's say 10 to 20. Yeah. Because I remember I had to pay for it in cash later, and it was like $178 oh. in 1994 money, and mm. I was like, that's all the money I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> so... So I came clean and, and the, the police, they had nothing. And the cops really, they were like blown away. They were, how did you do this? Where did you get the card? And I said, oh, the card is a burner. It's from this channel. And so they reported that to whoever at the police station. They didn't know anything about cybercrime. Uh, and cybercrime as a term was kind of this new thing. And so I don't know exactly how the FBI had found out about that or if that came later because it's been so long now. But another they they kind of had me on their list of like this kid is into something and we got to figure out what it is because it's above our level of knowledge like how come you have cell phones are these legally acquired we don't even have cell phones and we're adults how do you know how to program these and my dad's like i'm a mechanical engineer man i don't even know how to turn the computer on don't look at me so they were kind of confused about that and i know that they had they had talked to me about this and the school resource officer was like hey you're not an idiot don't do idiotic things that land you in prison with idiotic people for the rest of your young life. This is stupid. Don't go to juvie, you know, do community service and then stop this crap. But like focus on your, you got some kind of talent here. Just don't screw this up. And I remember thinking that's pretty cool because he could have just been mad. Instead he was like, this is not dumb. So I started working with the FBI later on down the line because I started working at this security company Long story short, I worked at a movie theater. It was owned by the owner of the Detroit Red Wings' daughter. So he would come in. He had private security. They would wait in the hallways while he watched movies. I would go chat those guys up because I liked karate, and they were all like, you know, (laughs) Navy SEAL dudes or something. Right. I told them I could make websites. They were like, oh, come make a website for my security company. We work with Mike Illich, the owner of the Red Wings, who also owned Little Caesars Pizza. No connection to the place that I (laughs) scammed in middle school. (laughs) And... uh, And and so I went down there to Detroit and they were doing all this like kind of real karate, not like the haya break a board as a kid, get get a little trophy. They were like, no, this is how you disarm someone with a gun. And we need this because we're working with gang squad. And I was like, this is the coolest thing ever. So they paid me in training and I paid I, I created websites and plugged in their computers and made sure they didn't have viruses on them and updated windows and all the stuff on the guys' laptops who worked there because they didn't have IT departments. You know, they were renting from Rent-A-Center, their computers. And so the guys would talk, I was the only kid there, obviously, who was probably 16 at the time. And all the guys were like these older African-American guys, a couple more white guys, and they would be talking about dating and women. And they're like, well, you, who are you dating? I'm like, I'm 16, I have no game. I don't know what, 
I don't know how to talk to women. Come on. Uh, I'm hacking, spo- I'm hacking yeah. a server right now, dude. Leave me alone. Yeah, I'm hacking cell phones. Do you think I have any kind of social life that involves the opposite sex? Come, get, come for your reality check, sir. So they would, they were, they were kind of joking and they're like, why don't you talk to girls? Like we can help you. So I started to talk to women online. This is again, the nineties, like America online, look up someone's profile, no pictures involved, just sending messages to women like, Hey, what's going on? And I remember one of the guys had a genius idea and he said, if you want to learn how to stand apart from all the other guys who are probably out there sending messages to all the young women out there. Create an account, a screen name that sounds like a girl, make a profile, see what all the guys are saying to you, and then send it to us, bring it to us. We'll come up with something that is better, funnier, more interesting, and you can use that. So I was like, oh, perfect. A little little market research. Market research, right? It was like these guys were, some of them were like intelligence officers, and they're like, this is what we would do, (laughs) like if we're doing this against the Soviets or whatever back in the day. (laughs) So I take all these, uh, I create the screen name. And I, I'm getting these, they weren't called DMs, they're called instant messages. But, you know, I was getting all these DMs, instant messages left and right. I would stick my uh, screen name in a chat room and just leave it run for like six hours until it would log me off from inactivity. And I'd have all these messages and I would show the guys. And so we would tailor what I was saying to, to the girls. But I also would check my email on the screen name that sounded like a, a girl. And I remember it was called like Bikini Sun. It was like a really obvious sort of teeny bopper name. Uh, Bikini Sun 84, I think is what it was. And so it was clearly a girl who was like 14. Yeah. Uh, And what, what happened was I started to get all these more disturbing messages coming in that were like, Hey, I'm a photographer. You want to come to this place? And, and I would be like, look at this loser. He says he's 38. And I bring these transcripts printed out to work and I'd show the guys and I remember the look on their face and the reaction was because I was like look at these losers like 38 he knows this girl's 14 he wants to take pictures of her what a loser who dates it and they were like whoa 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 dude this is not like a guy with a this is this is a predator this is a bad guy and I'd say really because I have like 14 of these different guys and this is from Tuesday to Thursday or Friday or whatever the week you know like And so I printed them all. They're like, bring it in. So I brought it in and they called their guys at the FBI and they said, can you fax those to us? So we faxed those to them and they called right away. And they're like, where did you get this? And it's like the kid who works here has these coming to him unsolicited all the time. And they're like, this is pretty serious. And again, Detroit FBI office, no cybercrime people there. They had to fax those to D.C. So they did that, told us to sit tight. Well, they got some interest back right away. And they're like, this is a child predator ring. And it sounds like child uh, sexual material because the guy says, I'm a photographer. I want to take pictures of you. It's not just like, let's meet up in a park and hang out. This is like a creepy photo shoot with a young girl. So they didn't really know how to go about this at first. So they decided to use this to get evidence against the people that were doing this. So I started to entertain these conversations with these guys. And eventually they I, I provided so many printouts and so many transcripts and the FBI would take over some of the conversations, but some of them they did not. And what we would do is. I would follow some pretty specific instructions from one of the agents in uh, Detroit who was liaising with DC, I guess. 
And we would tell I, Detroit area is kind of close to Ohio border. So Toledo, Ohio is right on the border. So what we, what I would do is I'd say, I'm going on a trip with my parents. If you want to come and do the photo shoot, then you can drive to this hotel in Toledo. And in Toledo, I didn't get to go to the hotel because I wasn't part of this part of the operation. But when the guy would drive to the hotel, the Holiday Inn on the Toledo, then the FBI would be there with local law enforcement and they would arrest him because he traveled across state lines, which wow. is how the FBI can get jurisdiction on a crime like this. And they would uh, arrest these guys for soliciting underage kids. And it sounds great and fun and it was very satisfying. But what was really scary and unsatisfying was I think I lured probably two or three people over state lines. The FBI probably handled six or seven conversations. That was probably less than I got in a week. Mm. And that was in the 90s Internet. Now everyone's online, right. meaning you could probably get six in an hour if you were in the wrong chat room. There are tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of these predators out there that are just running wild and almost impossible to catch. It's it's what I'm listening to. You, actually, I'm, I'm sure you've seen the movie. Catch me if you can. Yeah. Yeah. Frank Abagnale. He was Frank. on episode one of my of the Jordan yeah. Harbinger show. Well, yeah. that makes sense. And I had a chance to meet Frank and have dinner with him. And he started out as a kid yeah. with kind of an unusual start and turned it into something good and something positive, just like you did. He still seems like he's he's making amends for uh, the years gone by, but yeah. a brilliant guy. Well, I don't want to stop Jordan while he's in mid-flow here, but we have some great stuff to get to, including a really cool conversation we're going to have about networking. And Jordan's going to share some insights, kind of how he got to where he is today with 15 million downloads a month on his show by networking. And so he has a resource he's going to make available to people. So rather than try to rush this, I want to keep our show so it's a good commute for you and we don't want to do these long-form programs. We're going to take a little break. We're going to see you on Thursday for the rest of this interview, including some great stuff on networking. So you can tune into our second part of our interview with the great Jordan Harbinger. May the road rise up to meet you and may the wind always be at your back. May the rain fall soft upon your fields and the sun shine warm upon your face. And until we meet again, may God hold you in the hollow of his hand. See you next time. Mm-hmm.